Alright, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start in verses 11 through 14. Now, for those of you that are listening online right now and didn't get the little intro I did before I turned on the recorder, we're going to be covering a lot of Scripture tonight uh, in the book of Hebrews as well. So we're going to go further than we normally will, uh, normally have. Um, I also told you where we left off last time that we're going to be dealing with this passage in verse 9. You see in verse 9 of chapter 9 where it talked about this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. I told you where we left off last last week, we're going to be dealing with that, and we will. But you'll see that as we go forward, the Hebrew writer is going to be dealing with that. So we're not going to start in verse 9, we're going to start in verse 11, and move through verse 14. And as you're about to see, we're going to have to take a little detour, and to chase a little rabbit, but it's worth chasing. Uh, I remember a seminary professor said, it's okay to chase rabbits as long as you can catch them, and when you catch them, they taste good. It's okay to chase rabbits for those reasons. We're going to chase a rabbit that actually is catchable, and it'll taste real good when we catch it. Alright, and then we'll end up at the end of our study dealing with this clear conscience thing. So let me read to you from Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. It says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? We're going to stop right there and deal with this. Now... We're going to, like I said, we're going to talk about how we have the ability, what Christ has done through His sacrifice, through Him being the great high priest, through Him going into the true holy of holies in the presence of God with His own blood, once for all, as we're about to see tonight, that we have now the ability to have our consciences cleansed. Now, most Christians today, if you were to ask them, are, are they saved? They'd say yes. Are you going to heaven? Yes. Do you have a clean conscience? And they'd go, eh. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not doing real good. I'm not... I'm not I'm not real pleasing to God. I go to a lot of places and ask them on a scale of 1 to 10, how does God see you? And unfortunately, they don't say 10. They say 2, 4, maybe 6. I've had a good week. You know, kind of a thing. I want to get to that tonight and really what has been accomplished for us through Jesus Christ and how we should have a clean conscience before God. Now, before we do that, though, we have to deal with when did He enter, though? And that will help us deal with this clean conscience thing. When did He enter? We see here that Christ, we see in verse 11, He came as high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of the cre- this creation. He didn't enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, when did Jesus make that transition? When did He... And you're running ahead of me, Ron. Don't do that. And, uh, <laughs> and he, when did he go through the veil, if you will, into the Holy of Holies and, and offer his blood? Here's why I want to deal with it. Some of you are looking at me like, well, that's a no-brainer. I know when that happened. But I have to deal with this because there's been a wrong teaching about this for a lot of years in the church. And it actually comes from a mistranslation of a word in the King James. Now, a lot of you probably don't have the King James translation in front of you. And so I've asked Diggy Van to help us out because she's got hers and she's waving it around she's proud of it and I'm glad it's here there we go so what I want you all to do is turn to John chapter 20 verses 11 through 18 John chapter 20 verses 11 through 18 
You see, there, I actually grew up listening, hearing this kind of preaching as well. This is what I was told. That Jesus didn't enter God's presence to offer His blood until after His ascension. I was told, growing up in church, that Jesus suffered in hell. and He was, he was in the tomb for three days. And then after His ascension, He then went to the Father to offer His blood. And their proof of it was John chapter 20. Verses 11 through 18. So if you'll read verses 20, 11 through 18 in John 24, go ahead and read them for us good and loud. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me, where hast thou laid him? And I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. Thank you, ma'am. Now, please understand, this is not a bash of the King James translation. You've heard me, even though I use the NIV in our study, that we there are times I don't like the word they use in the NIV translation. What I want you to hear, though, is in that translation, in the King James, Jesus says to Mary what? And she goes to touch Him. Don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And they say that because the high priest, when he was going to offer the sacrifices, had to totally change his clothes and give himself a bath, he had to be ceremonially clean, you could not touch the high priest until he had offered the sacrifices or he would become unclean. And because Jesus says to her, don't touch me, and I haven't ascended to the Father, they took that as meaning that Jesus had not yet entered with his own own blood into the presence of God. And it sure looks like that, does it not? But let me just show you that I can show you tonight, and we're going to deal with that, that that's not a good translation. Touch me not is not a good translation. Some of you that have other translations, what do yours say? Don't hold on to me. Don't cling. And that's a better translation. And I can prove it to you from the King James. Yeah, the New King James says what? Don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Go to the, now read us for us again, Nikki, in, in uh, John chapter, sorry, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. You're going to see in the King James translation in Matthew's account that they do touch him. So if you're going to use the King James to say that he hadn't been, he couldn't be touched because he hadn't ascended to the Father with his blood yet, you you got a problem because in Matthew 28 verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and read. Actually, just for the sake of time, uh, go ahead and just read, uh, starting in verse um, eight. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre and with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And they began to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hell. And they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. Are they touching him there? 
So even in the King James, he's being touched in Matthew. So it wasn't that he couldn't be touched because he hadn't offered his blood yet. He was obviously being touched. All the other translations more accurately translate it, don't hold on to me. And all he's simply saying is this, you want me to stay here with you. That's why they were, remember he had gone and they were like, don't ever leave again kind of a thing. And he's like, look, don't hold on to me. I haven't been to my father yet. When I go to my father, remember he had said in John 16 earlier, it's good for you that I'm going away. Because if I go away, then what? The Holy Spirit will come and I can be with you forever. He's saying, look, don't try to hold me here. You think that it's good to hold me here. When I go back to my father, when I ascend to my father, it's going to be awesome because I can then be with you all the time. Now, did Jesus, after his resurrection here, then ascend to the father? No, the Bible's very clear, if you take the time to do the study, that he stayed on the earth and did what? He met with his people. He appeared to many people over a 40-day period. He met and appeared to many folks. And so I want, what I guess what I want to deal with is, is this. Because of the translation that we have in the King James, even in Matthew 28, it's obvious that he did, wasn't saying, don't touch me. He was saying, don't hold on to me. Secondly, we see then in the 40 days that he was appearing to his disciples, before he ascended, he told Thomas to do what? He said to Thomas, touch me. But for a long time, people said that Jesus didn't offer his blood until after his ascension because of that translation in John 20, verses 11 through 18 in the King James. So now we've got to deal with this question. When then did he offer his blood? When was that offering of his own blood in the true tabernacle of heaven? When was that done? And I'm going to tell you, it happened at the moment of his death. And I can show you that we're not going to have time to even get to that one, but it is finished, he said. But let's start in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. We'll look at verses 44 through 46. Alright, starting in verse 44 of Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Where did Jesus say he was going? Going to his father. What also happened in the moment of his death? The temple veil was torn. What is the tearing of the temple veil from top to bottom signifying? Now you can go straight into the presence of God. There's no more need to have a high priest. There's no need, there's no need to have someone offer sacrifices. The way has been opened. And that means that at that moment of his death, God received Jesus' sacrifice. It happened at the moment of His death. Now that's kind of important for where we're going to be going. I'm not going to take the time. I'm going to read you a couple more passages about Jesus' death as well. I'm not, and I'm not going to take the time to go into a deeper study. But there's been something that uh, I've been wrestling with for a while that I'll get to in a second. And, and uh, hopefully it will make some sense. Go to John chapter 19. Look at verses 28 through 30. And actually, we're going to look at the one that Chris just referenced here. In John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, 
later, later knowing that all was now completed. Do you see that? So that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The moment that he died, the sacrifice was paid for. It was done at that moment. He didn't have further work to do. All right, go to Matthew 27. Look at verses 50 and 51. Now, again, understand this rabbit we're chasing as to when did he actually offer his blood in the Holy of Holies in heaven is going to be helping us where we're going tonight in the cleaning of the conscience. Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. Here in Matthew's account we see, And when Jesus had, again, had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. I think God's pretty much signifying at that moment that it's been taken care of. It's been done. And one last one, Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. Luke 23, 39 through 43. It says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Now, by the way, um, let me just clarify for you. People have had a mindset that the two thieves that were crucified on each side of Jesus, both were, uh, sorry, one was a good thief, one was a bad thief, if you will. But actually, if you look at Matthew's account, they both were making fun of him. One of the thieves, though, changes his mind. During that time on the cross, he comes to faith and actually says, you know what, I think this guy is for real. But they were both mocking him. It's very clear in Scripture they were both mocking him. But in verse 39 of Luke 23, it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. He's not saying, wait until I finish my time in the tomb, wait until I get to the Father and offer my blood. He said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Because it was taken care of at the moment of his death. Now, along that line, please understand, I don't want to chase this rabbit. It is a rabbit that can be chased, but it's not worth chasing. And it can be caught, but it's not worth catching tonight for where we need to go. There are those that teach that paradise was in the earth until after Jesus' death on the cross. That actually Hades is, is, is made up of two compartments. And that there's the bad side of Hades called Hades and there's the good side of Hades called paradise. And they take a passage from Ephesians where it, Paul talks about how he descended to the lower earthly regions and he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. And for a while they have taught that during the time that Jesus was in the tomb, he went down to that place and he led all the believing people who hadn't been covered by his blood yet, who were in the paradise or the presence of God. They were, they were in a place of holding until this moment that Jesus led them out and then took them into the presence of God. I'm going to tell you, I have wrestled with this for a long, long time and looked at it over many, many years. And honestly, 
There isn't any real evidence in Scripture that that was the case. Definitely, we know from Luke chapter 16 that there is a place called Hades. It is a place of torment. We do know there is a place called Paradise, or it was always pictured as the third heaven, Paul said. I saw the third heaven, or Paradise. And, but always we see that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's an, I don't see anywhere that Scripture says that before Christ's death on the cross, believing people went to a place of holding, even though it was called paradise, in the middle of the earth. I don't see the scripture teaching that. Now, there are those that believe that, but I'm going to be honest with you, it comes more from a Jewish tradition than it does scripture. And secondly, the passage that Paul that they use, that Paul uses, where it talks about he descended to the lower earthly regions, if you really look at the translation of it, it's a better translation of a just picture of him leaving heaven and coming to the earth. He descended and he gave gifts to men, which is a picture, as Paul was talking about in that passage in Ephesians 4, of the gifts given to the church. And Jesus himself said, hey, wait until you receive the gift that your fathers promised you. And as you know, the scripture teaches very clearly that when we're born again, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And at that moment, he gives us a gift or gifts of the Spirit that he wants to use for his purposes. I don't believe that the passage in Ephesians 4 is actually saying that Jesus went into the heart of the depth of the earth. I believe the Bible teaches that Hades is there and it is a place of torment for people that are separated from God because of their sin. But I don't think that there really was, and this is just Jim, and I understand there are people that are far greater than me in their understanding of Scripture that, that, that feel differently. But I don't see that scripturally. I think the scripture teaches that everyone who had been a believer was given righteousness because of their faith, remember? And if you're given righteousness, there's not a place of holding until Jesus covers it with his blood. And then he'll get you out and take you into the presence of God. If you're given righteousness, you're given righteousness. And we see in Matthew chapter 17 that when Jesus appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears with him? Elijah and Moses. Well, if you believe that they have to be in that place of holding in the center of the earth called paradise, if you will, until Jesus offers his blood, did he take them out of the place of holding until then to show up on the earth and then go back? Or is it that they've been in the presence of God all along? Jesus himself in John chapter 8 said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. you seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was born, I, I am. I honestly believe, folks, that because of God's foreknowledge and God's all-knowledge, if you will, if someone has been given righteousness, God knows that His Son is going to cover it with His blood, that they went into His presence, even before Jesus died on the cross, they went into His presence because of God and His righteous, giving them righteousness. I don't see this place of holding prior to the death of Jesus Christ. Now they're saying, wait a minute, what about the passage where it says in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well again, that's one of those passages that we wrestle with because we're not quite sure how to translate it. There's a very strong chance that the passage is simply saying that the Holy Spirit preached through Noah during that time to those who are now in prison. It's not, it, there's a chance that actually in the construction of the sentence, it wasn't saying that Jesus went down during that time and preached to the spirits in prison. It actually might be saying in the, in the reconstruction of the sentence properly that the Holy Spirit, while Noah was doing his work, preached through Noah at that time. So again, that's Jim's interpretation of it. That's where I am. And I really believe that when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, anybody that dies prior to the cross and after the cross, was able to go, if they were given righteousness because of their faith, was able to go into the presence of God because of Jesus' sacrifice. 
Alright? If you have questions about that, you want to wrestle with me afterwards, wait till we turn the recorder off, because I'm sure there's a bunch of people around the country listening and say, let's get back to Hebrews. Alright? So let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's go back to it and say, what about this clean conscience? Alright? Now, verses 8 and 10 show us that the old system of sacrifices and rituals was not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Do you see it? Hebrews chapter 9, look at verses 8 through 10. The Holy Spirit was showing us, showing this, by the way, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the, excuse me, the time of the new order. Alright, so, the old way of doing it, the sacrificial system, the law of Moses, all that, was that able to clear the conscience of the worshiper? No, it was not able to. It was make them ceremonially clean, outwardly clean, until the next sacrifice. And because it had to keep being offered, it wasn't able to clean their consciences. But with that, he's inferring what? That when the new order comes, it will be able to clean your conscience and clear your conscience. Alright? So... The new order is able to clear your conscience. So what I'm going to do now is something that's going to be a little different than what we normally do in our studies. I'm going to read to you. And I'm going to read to you long sections. And I want you to stay with me. And at certain points I'm going to stop, preach and teach on it for a little bit, and I'm going to keep reading. And we're going to read right now from where we left off in verse 14 all the way to chapter 10, verse 23. Because the Hebrew writer has going into great detail now to just prove this point about your need for a clean conscience or the fact that you have the ability to have a clean and clear conscience. So, starting in verse, uh, we'll go back to verse 14 then. He says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now let me just set this all up with, I was sitting in a, in a house in Virginia uh, two or three years ago. We were at a friend's house and uh, they had their mother over and they kind of whispered to me and said, Would you find out if mama knows Jesus? Now, you have to understand, I'm going to tell you now, if you do that to me, the prophet in me may come out and say, that's your mama, what's your problem, why are you waiting until the preacher shows up to find out if she knows Jesus? Alright, but God made me bite my tongue, and I sat down, and I asked mama this question, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? This was her answer, and I wish I could tell you I've never heard it before. She said, I sure hope so. I believe in Jesus. And I'm trying to live a good life. Folks, I grieved. And I had to look her in the eye and say, there's a strong chance you're not going if you think it has anything to do with you. She wasn't real happy to hear that, to be honest with you. thought as a rude young man. But I shared with her how the Bible teaches that it's all through Jesus. And when you understand that, it should hopefully make an effect in your heart that you have a clean conscience. Does God want us to live obediently? Yes. Does God want us to live according to His design? Yes. Will that determine whether or not we're righteous and whether or not we have a clean conscience? It should not. Because what has cleansed our consciences, according to verse 14? Jesus' blood alone. Not our behavior, but Jesus' blood. 
For this reason, verse 15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did He enter heaven to offer Himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not His own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now He has appeared, listen, once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That's important. He has, he has appeared and, and went once for all. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to who? That's why I want you to be watchers. I want you to be looking for His return. Because He's bringing it to those who are waiting and looking. That's why at the end of Paul's life he said, I finished the race, I fought the fight, I'm done, and I'll, I know God has laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all who are longing for His appearing. All throughout the Scripture, I could take days to show you how many places the Scripture keeps saying over and over and over, be watching for His return, be ready for His return. Don't fall prey to the mindset of, well, nobody knows the day of the hour. I actually think there's a small chance that that passage that's been used all these years to say, no one knows the day, and Jesus doesn't even know, only the Father, and you'll have to ask me about it later. I think that passage, there's a strong chance that passage was the exact opposite, that Jesus might have actually been telling us exactly when He was coming back, according to that passage. But you'll have to come back for that end of the time study for that one. So, let's go back to, this, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. You're welcome. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 1 and following. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Now, let me just stop you real quick. Would you not agree that the law, it was foolish to think that they kept doing these things, it would make them right? Right? Then how can we do it? How can we fall into this pattern of thinking, oh, I'll do better. And if I do better, God will be pleased with me. We think that it's something that we do that determines whether or not God is pleased. Folks, I want you to walk out of here with a clean conscience. It has nothing to do with you. 
It has everything to do with Jesus and what He has accomplished by His blood. That's it. And, and, and many in the church are afraid of this. They're thinking, well, if you say that, then people will just do whatever they want and they'll run amok. Listen to me, the Scripture is so clear that if you've truly been born again and He's given you His Spirit, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 says, the one born of God will not continue to sin because the one who has been born of God, Jesus, will keep him safe. If you have truly been born again, you won't run amok. You may test this grace, but you won't run amok because the one who is within you will keep you from doing that. And truly, if you were to look me in the eye and say, because of the grace of Christ, I can do whatever I want now, I will smile at you and think, I'm not sure you got it. Because those who truly have it, they won't run far. They won't run far. So don't let the fear of people abusing the truth of the gospel keep you from preaching the gospel. Les Feldick says it this way. He says, if you present the gospel and they don't respond with, so you're saying I can, then you haven't presented the gospel. There is that element of what this message is saying. It is so much all Jesus, people's first reaction is going to be, so it really has nothing to do with what I do? And the answer to that is yes. That's what the gospel is. It's been done by Him alone. Now, what about my behavior? Don't worry about that. If you're His, you become His, and He'll finish what He started. It's like a loving Father will deal with His children to keep them in line. He'll deal with you. Oh, and let me just give you a little heads up. Um, Respond early when He begins to deal with you, because He'll then amp up the, the, the discipline. And He's very good at amping up the discipline if need be. But if you're His, He'll finish with you. He won't let you run far. And you may suffer a little bit as you as you run from His discipline, but He loves you. And, he, and we'll get to that in Hebrews chapter 12 sometime in 2014. All right, now, that was a joke. I don't think we got 2014. All right, let's go to back now in chapter 10. Look, look at what it says in verse 2. All right, it just said that the, the, the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year are not able to make them perfect. All right, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For if the worshipers, for the worshipers who would, would have been cleansed once and for all and would have what? no longer felt guilty for their sins. Let me ask you a question. Have you still, after salvation, felt guilty for your sins? We do, don't we? Now, there's a difference between repentance for things that God is not pleased with, but feeling guilty for our sins should not be necessary because you are no longer guilty. You are righteous. Well, I don't feel righteous. Well, that's the problem. Because Jesus, through what He's done on the cross and through Him offering His own blood, has made it so that you should not feel unrighteous. Because you are, in the eyes of God, declared righteous. Now listen to me. I'm not saying that God sees you through Jesus and you're still a nasty little person. As you're about to see later in this study, you have become a new creation. Christ Himself is within you, and Christ's righteousness is your righteousness. You are righteous because of Jesus. Just hang on to Him and enjoy the ride. It has nothing to do with you. And the sooner you get that, the sooner you'll start to notice Him take control and live Himself through you. That's why Paul said, I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who's inside. In other words, Paul says, he even says later, I don't even judge myself. I don't sit around and decide how well I'm doing. He just rests in Jesus Christ. And it's time for us as Christians to stop examining ourselves. How are you doing? Are you having a good week? Are you doing bad? How about we just rest in the fact that God has declared us righteous. He's living within us. And we give Him the reins. And believe that He will get us where He wants us to be. Oh, in those days when we take control and we don't listen and we don't yield to His Spirit, it doesn't change our righteousness for a second. 
And our Father lovingly says, let's get back, back to what I have in mind. And the sooner you come to rest in that, the sooner it starts to really sink in, and you're going to see tonight by faith, the sooner you're going to have peace. The sooner you're going to have that clean conscience that is already yours through Jesus Christ. And the sooner someone will ask you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. I heard a preacher say today, it wasn't me, it was somebody else I was listening to preach today. He said, I am happier when I'm sad than most Christians today when they're, when they're happy. Let's continue to read. Verse 3 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll. I have come to do Your will, O God. First He said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then He said, Here I am. I have come to do Your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you see that? Are you holy? Do you feel holy? Sometimes. Does that change whether or not you're holy? No. Folks, it's time we started living by the truth of the Word of God. The Bible says that because of what Jesus has done, you have been made holy. Don't let anybody tell you you'll get there. You are. Now, are you a pro- is, is salvation a point or a process? Yes. yes. Is sanctification a point or a process? Yes. But don't forget the fact that even though it's still a process, that it's also a point. You have been declared holy. Oh, you're going to see in another verse or two, the same person write, the Hebrew writer write, you're being made holy. So which is it? Am I being made holy or am I holy? Yes, you're holy. And you're being made holy. Well, what's my job? Go along for the ride. Let him live his life through you. Rest in him. Do you even understand how he does it? How does he make me holy? How does, how does, he, how does he make his changes in my life? I don't know. Neither do you. But the sooner I stopped trying to help him, the sooner I started to realize, hey, I'm starting to notice a change in my behavior. I'm starting to notice a change in my wants and my don't wants. I'm starting to notice peace and I didn't do it. Well, I mean, it's because I read my Bible this week. No. It's because I stopped trying to do what only Jesus can do and I believed He would do it. And folks, I wish there was another way I could help you see it more than just saying that. Let's just keep reading. Day after day, verse 11. Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And we pray, Lord, I'll do this and hope that that will take away my sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Meaning what? When he sat down, it means what? He's done. He sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And oh, by the way, they're lining up. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see it? 
When? By what have you been made perfect forever? By His sacrifice. Remember at the moment that He died, at the moment that the veil was rent, at that moment His blood was offered in the Holy of Holies. It was done. It was taken care of. Folks, you have been made holy. Please stop singing the song, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner saved by grace, but you are now a new creation. You're not a sinner. Do we still sin? Yes. And whenever I preach this, people go, are you saying you don't sin? No, I never said I don't sin. I said I'm not a sinner. I'm a new creation. I've been given the righteousness of Christ. I have been declared holy. And what my Father started, He will finish. He had planned, pre-planned, those He foreknew. He pre-planned or predestined to conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ as I allow Him to live His life through me. But folks, I am not the same old sinner anymore. That guy's gone. Oh, there's still some evidences of him left in my flesh. But the sooner I started to realize it wasn't me and Jesus finishing this job of salvation and sanctification. That it was Jesus who did my justification and my sanctification. And I stopped trying to help Him. And I believed that He was going to get me there. I started to watch the change start to happen that God had already declared and that He promised He would do. But it took me stop trying to help Him. And I'm about to get to something in a little bit that will just prove it to you and show you scripturally it's been there all along. Go right ahead, Ron. The word perfect is really strong. Yes, it is. It's stronger than we would ever imagine. Another word is complete. Folks, I'm telling you, for too long we've had the preachers telling us that you're still the same old you, but God sees you through Christ. It's not it. You are in Christ. You were showing, talking about those CDs that you had uh, before Debbie. Uh, if you keep listening, you'll see we'll talk about this a little bit more when I taught on John 17 and how Jesus prayed in the garden there right before the cross. Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. And for years the preacher said that Jesus prayed that we'd all get along. No, go look again. Every time he said that they would be one as you and I are one, he says, I and them and you and me. Jesus prayed this, Father... I'm praying that through my sacrifice, that the exact same relationship that you and I have, because remember how Jesus said, I and the Father are what? One. One. The same relationship that I have in the flesh here as Christ on the earth, my prayer that they would have that same relationship with you. And actually, that's what we have. Oh, it gets hard for us to grasp because if we don't look like Him, we don't walk like Him, we don't act like Him. Don't worry about it. You'll get there. Remember when your kids were little and they couldn't tie their shoes and they cried? You didn't freak out. Why? Because you knew they'd learn. And you relax and you say, it's okay, honey, you're going to be all right. You'll get there. In the same way, our Father looks at us and says, I know what I started and I'll finish it. I'm not as freaked out by the fact that you're not there yet as you are. Relax, you'll get there because I'm going to do it. Stop trying to help me and just believe that I'll get you there. Keep reading. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. And after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. But what about what I did Tuesday? Gone. 
And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Now when you hear that, what, is, what, what do you hear God saying to you? What do we tend to try to do sometimes when we sin? We try to make up for it, don't we? We try to make some kind of sacrifice for it. God has already said to us in His Word, No, 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 you still don't understand. If you still think you have to make a sacrifice for what you've done, you still don't understand that what Jesus did, did it all, once for all. Once for all. For all time. It's been done. Folks, have you started to sit there thinking, this is too good to be true? It starts When it really starts to hit you, you go, this is too good to be true. It's great and it's true. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God, this is the important part here, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is what? So how do we receive this clear conscience, folks? By faith. By faith. In the once for all sacrifice of Jesus for, of His own blood and His accomplishment in the presence of God Himself. Let me take you to a couple of places in the ten minutes that we have left. Go to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 4 and then we're going to jump to verses 33 and 34. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you see it? If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation ever. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature or the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, for years I wrestled with this because it sounds so good and then it seems like He takes it away at the end of verse 4. At the beginning, it looks like he says there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. But then at the end of verse 4, it kind of reads, uh, But those who live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And all in their days I live according to the flesh and not the Spirit. And I started to think that it was mine, but then I lost it. But if you, And we don't have the time to do this. But if you go and you relook at the study, though, and the NIV is a bad... Like I told you, that there's a bad translation in the King James. The NIV is a bad translation every time they say sinful nature instead of flesh. The word flesh is the better translation. Sinful nature acts like you still have your sinful nature. No. I, sin, sin is still in my flesh. But I don't have my sinful nature anymore. I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So when the NIV says sinful nature, it's a horrible translation. It really confuses a lot of people. 
That's why Paul said, and we don't have time to get into that, in Romans 7, just prior to what we read here, he said, that when he, he said, oh, what a man I am. Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't. Who can save me from this body of death? And then he also says twice in that section that it's no longer him sinning. It's sin living in me that does this. Isn't that amazing? I'll get right to you, Bill. Yes, it's in, his, it's in our flesh. But it, my old nature is gone. But when he goes on here in chapter 8 to talk about the difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit, he's simply talking not about those who behave and those who don't behave. He's talking about the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're still in your flesh. And oh, by the way, your flesh is dead and you're dead with it. But if you're in Christ, you're righteous, even though your flesh is still dead and it's going to go away. If you're in Christ, you're righteous. And you go and look and you'll see in the whole passage, he just is really clarifying between those who are in Christ and not. Let me ask and clarify it to you this way. In the world, there's two groups of people. Those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. Right? All in Adam will die. All in Christ will be made alive. Would you not agree that of those who are in Adam, people are going to hell, apart from Christ, would you not agree that of those who are in Adam, there are some that are way better behaved than others. Right? Will that determine whether or not they get into hell or out of hell? No. They're in Adam. That's what determines whether or not they go to hell. Let's take our group that's in Christ. Are there those who are in Christ who are better behaved than those others who are in Christ? Yes. Does that change whether or not they're going to heaven? No, because the determination is not your behavior. It is whether or not you're in Christ. Do you see it? Bill, you want to say something? Uh, I did some study of this people in flesh, and I, I disagree that I think the sinful nature is a good translation because the Greek word says it can either be your physical body or it can be your sinful, evil nature. So right. it can be either one. Right, but at the same, it's the remnants of it. Well, wait a minute. And then, uh, because in, the, uh, in, uh, in John it says, for the word became flesh. Mm-hmm. And if you keep saying that throughout Scripture and don't recognize the difference, like the, the sins of the flesh are all these bad things. Mm-hmm. So if you always see the word flesh, unless you do a study of the Greek translation, you assume they all be the same. Well, and, and, and they... And, 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 and where flesh is bad, right. you put sinful nature right, but, automatically and I understand what you're saying, and that's right. They did use that term sinful nature because they wanted to separate between the difference between skin, if you will, and, and the evilness of that, that's in the world and in us. But sinful nature probably isn't the best translation either because that nature has been destroyed. Because I ask people that think they still have a sinful nature, then what died? I mean, we've been put to death with Christ. What was crucified? What died? If you still have your sinful nature... What died? Do you see what I'm saying? So I would agree. There is a need to distinguish between sark, which is skin, and flesh, which means the, the evil part of us, if you will. Well, even if, you're, if you're as a Christian, you committed mm-hmm. one of those sins relations, mm-hmm. uh, that would have been your sinful nature. Wouldn't well, what's left of it is still in your flesh. Yeah, we're, still it's still, we're still wrestling with it, but it's not what rules oh, us from... Agreed. But then if you go look at 7, though, he says twice, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. He understands, he separates the difference between the fact that that's not me anymore. It's still there. And I still wrestle with it. But it's not me. And I guess what I want you to understand is that the root of who you are now, because of Christ, is not the sinful nature. That's not what's ruling. Christ can be, 
now because of there. Go ahead, Chris. Even in Romans 8, verse 2, there, we kind of read that last part of that quickly. This is 73 from the law of sin and death. People who have accepted Christ tend to understand that they've been set free from death in the eternal sense, but they overlook the fact that they've been set free from the law of sin. That's a good point. What does that mean? If you've been set free from the law of sin, what does that mean? That's right. It means that you're no longer bound to Yep. And then that's the thing is, before salvation, our focus needs to be sin. I mean, God uses the law to show us our sin. But after salvation, after giving, being given righteousness in Christ, sin should not be your focus. But too many Christians spend most of their Christian life trying to have victory over sin. Agreed. And it even says in 1 John chapter 2, I write these to you, dear children, that you don't sin. But if we have sin, we have an advocate. And so what I'm saying is, the focus should not be sin. I'm not saying you don't sin. Please don't hear I'm saying you don't sin. But the focus should not be sin. The focus should be the righteousness of Christ that you've been given. And when you sin, thank God for the righteousness that He's given you. Thank Him for His forgiveness that's been already accomplished. Thank you that even though I don't look holy, I am holy. That's, that's an amazing thing. And the best way I can close it up for us tonight is to just illustrate it to you real quick in John 21. And we're going to do this real, real fast. Because actually, uh, I don't have time in the time that we have left to really get into it too much. But in John 21, I want you to see a picture here of what we're talking about. Starting verse 1. This is after Jesus' death on the cross. This is after His resurrection. He's appearing during these 40 days uh, before He ascended to the Father. And John 21 says, After Jesus appeared again to His disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple whom Jesus loved said, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And then, as you know, they, Peter jumps in the water, swims to shore to be the first one. When they get there, Jesus has got some fish cooking on the coals. Now, what I want to deal with in the time we have left is simply this. Earlier, when Jesus appeared to the disciples and revealed himself in John chapter, sorry, Luke chapter 5, how did Jesus reveal his deity to Peter? Well, walking on the waters later. In Luke 5, he says to Peter, let's, he borrowed Peter's boat to preach from. There's a big group of people on the shore. He gets in Peter's boat and he preaches from there. Then afterwards, he turns to Peter and he says, let's put the boat out in the deep water and throw out the nets for a catch. Peter says, look, Master, we fished all night. There ain't no fish here. But because you say so, I'll do it. They throw the net over, and they catch so many fish, they need their buddies to come help them pull the net in. Peter falls on his knees and says, I'm a sinful man, get away from me, Lord. He realizes the, the glory and the deity of Jesus. Now, after living with him for three years, after watching his death, seeing him in his resurrection, they, one of those days during the 40, they didn't know what to do. They said, let's, well, let's go fish. So they go out to fish, and they don't catch anything. And I believe the scripture shows us that Jesus was on the shore for a long time. It appears that he just appears in the morning. But when they came to the shore, the fire was coals. So for a fire to be coals, the fire had to have been burning for a long time. I think while they were out there fishing at night, they saw some local yokel on the shore 
with a fire. But they don't know it's Jesus. They don't recognize it's Jesus. They just see some guy with his fire. And after they fished all night, that guy has the nerve as it starts to turn morning to say, Hey, well, as it says here, haven't you any fish? But actually, in the Greek, it reads in the negative. It says it this way. You don't got any fish, do you? That's literally how it reads. You don't got any fish, do you? Now, put yourself in the mind of these fishermen. They're fishermen. Some nuts been sitting there watch, watching them fish all night. They're a little bit frustrated that they haven't caught anything. And you guys that are fishermen, you know you're not in a good mood if you fished all night and had nothing. And they're fishing with nets. Alright? And some whoever on the shore yells the nerve to yell out, You don't got any fish, do you? Mine says, Children, you do not have fish. Yeah. You can picture the rough and tough Peters thinking, let us get to shore and we'll show you what we got. You know what I'm saying? But these guys are so frustrated, they're willing to try anything. And even though they don't know it's Jesus, and this guy says, throw it on the right side of the boat and you'll catch some. And again, you've got to understand, like they haven't tried that. But they do it. And then all of a sudden, there's so many fish in that net, Peter goes, I mean, John goes, I know who that is. That's Jesus. I think Jesus has given us a picture of something here. At the beginning, He showed them, it's not you, it's me. He'd walked with them. He'd been teaching them in the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and all this stuff. It's not you, it's me. And then after His death and His resurrection... He, I believe, told all the fish, stay away. I want to teach these guys something again. Yes, you have been given righteousness. Yes, you have been declared righteous because of what I've done. Yes, I call you my brothers now because of this. But you still need to learn, it is not you. It's me. And he retaught that same lesson. You know why? When they got to the shore, and they... Had to haul all those nets of fish in. What did he have on the coals? He had fish cooking already. I don't need your fish, guys. He does say to them, hey, take some of the fish you caught, throw it on the fire. I'll use what what I do through you, but I don't need you. Folks, please hear me. Because of what Jesus did on His own, by His own decree before the creation of the world, you have been made holy because of Him. He doesn't need your help. If we would agree that the offering of sacrifices over and over would never cleanse the conscience and never make someone holy, why do you think that if you do better this week, that God will be more pleased with you? The only way you receive this clean conscience is by faith. Will you still sin? Yeah. Unless you even said, if we say we don't sin, we lie. But I'll tell you this much. You will start to see victory over sin when you yield to Jesus Christ and rest in the fact that even if you have a bad week, you're still going to heaven. And He loves you just as much. And it has nothing to do with you, all to do with Him. And I hope you walk out of here with a clean conscience tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for itself. There's so much here. I have a hard time sometimes, Lord, not wanting to preach from every book in the Bible because it all ties together. But thank You that Your Spirit has just led us tonight to look at these passages. Thank You for the fact that Your Word says that we are holy. We have been made perfect. We we get so focused so so many times on our sin. 
and you said that's your responsibility, that you're going to work on us, and you're going to, you're going to shape us, and you're going to mold us, and you're going to discipline us, and you're going to prune us, and that you would finish what you started. Father, may we claim that today, that we be confident of this very thing, that you who began this good work in us would finish it, that it's not up to us. Lord Jesus, we believe you're coming soon, and we're ready, and we're watching. But I pray, Lord, that between now and then, as this world continues to hiccup, as we start to see more and more pictures of what's coming during the last seven years on the earth, before the millennium, Lord, may the world around us see people who are at peace because they truly trust you not only with their salvation, but with their whole lives. Lord, may what's left of the church that is salty be salty in these days. May what's left of the church that has true light shine brightly these days. But may we not think it's up to us to put on a good face. May we truly rest in you and let you shine through us. We pray in your name. Amen.